you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Exodus, and we will be finishing up chapter 12 and just getting into chapter 13. And uh, you may be wondering what this water up here is for. Yeah, well, yeah, we're going to take a bath. I'm actually going to bring it out and dump it on all of you. Uh, this is, that's the joy of being here physically in person today. So uh, that's, what, that's your reward for showing up. Uh, so um, I have a few vases up here. I kind of want to explain what's going on. So um, these vases represent for us our perception of ourselves. So, uh, so I want you to imagine, you know, we have a, a vase that's mostly full here. Uh, there's just a very little bit near the top that's not full. So, so when we talk about our perception of ourselves, um, kind of a question that we're asking is, how much do I need from Jesus? When we talk about our perception of ourselves, we're asking this question, how much do I really need from Jesus? And so, so this, uh, this vase that's kind of mostly full, just a little bit left at the top, that kind of speaks of a perception that says, you know, you know, I've got most of what I need. I've really got a lot of what I need myself. Uh, I really just kind of need Jesus to get me over the edge a little bit. I just need a little bit from Jesus. If he could give me that much, uh, if he could kind of like get me to heaven or whatever, yeah, just give me what I need to get into the next life, like that would be really good. So I only need a little bit from Jesus. So that, that's kind of one self-perception. Another self-perception is, is this one. Uh, you know, this is halfway full. So it's like, you know, I've got a lot of what I need, especially if you're a glass half full person. You know, I've got a lot of what I need. I just need some things from Jesus. So you know what? I might go to church every week just to get the some things that I need from him. I, like, I need his presence and that kind of stuff. Like, but, I, but I don't need everything from Jesus. You know, so, so I've, I've kind of got some of what I need already. Uh, and then this last vase is the empty vase, the vase that has nothing to give, the vase that uh, is completely broken. This, the person who has this self-perception recognizes, um, I don't have any of what I need. I have, I have nothing that I need. And so what I actually need is I need Jesus to fill me up entirely. Like, I need Jesus to cover everything. That's what this self-perception is. And so this amazing thing happens. We talk about, you know, in the Bible, we talk about how Jesus comes and he rescues us from sin. Like, this is what Jesus does for us. He comes and rescues us for sin. He meets a, you know, a really important need for us. And so that rescuing us from sin kind of really just, it fills us up to kind of overflowing in every case and kind of meets all of those needs that we were talking about. So what is self-perception have to do with this? Well, it impacts how meaningful that moment is to us. That moment when Jesus rescues us, our self-perception is impacted by how full we think we are when he rescues us. So, so the, the vase that was pretty much full, it's only just got a little bit more to go, Right? So, so they only got just a little bit from Jesus in their mind anyway. You know what? A person who only got a little bit doesn't really end up 
changing a whole lot. If you think you only got a little bit, you don't change a whole lot. Uh, The person who is pretty good, they got a little more. Maybe they change a little more, but they didn't need everything from Jesus. But then the empty one. The empty one recognizes something really, really important. I needed everything. And so I evaluate everything in my life. I'm working to change all the time. I'm striving for greater faithfulness because I recognize that I was empty. And I needed Jesus to fill me entirely. Every single piece was empty. And when Jesus saved me, every single piece has been covered. And therefore, every piece belongs to him. So this is, this is the, the, the concept that we're going with. I want you to hold on to this idea because we're going to keep coming back to it as we go through Exodus chapter 12. So, uh, so yeah, we're in Exodus 12, 29. Verse 29 is where we're starting this morning. And, and we are in the middle of God's judgment against Egypt. Like, this is, this is the death of the firstborn. And this is not, Pastor Don showed us last week, this is not just God's judgment against the people of Egypt, but it's also his judgment against the Egyptian gods. And it's not just his judgment against the Egyptian gods, but it is his judgment against sin. Like, that becomes evident in the Passover, and specifically with the death of the firstborn. And so we're actually going to watch what happens with God's people as they are in the midst of this judgment. We're going to see three stages, three stages of what happens to God's people after this judgment takes place. So number, number one, stage number one, you are rescued. Stage one, you are rescued. So I want you to imagine being a parent with me. How appropriate is it that on Father's Day we are talking about the death of the firstborn? Like I could not think of a better way to time that out. But, uh, but I want you to imagine being a parent the night that this plague is taking place. And what you have become aware of is that this is not just a plague against Egypt. Everyone's being judged. Everyone's being judged. This plague is against everyone. And, but what we find out is that God has actually like made a way out for some people. But here's the thing. Nobody is left out of the plague. It's coming against everyone. The only way you can avoid it is through obedience to God. That's your only way out. And so anybody could have been saved if they applied the blood. But every single person in Egypt, Israelite or Egyptian, was in the same boat. Everybody was the empty cup in this situation. This is what was going on. And so, so because God is not just judging Egypt, but he's judging sin, right? So imagine being a parent, and you heard that this plague was coming. Now, you don't just hear that this plague is coming, but you've seen God act again and again and again through the last nine plagues and reveal his power in all of these ways. And then you hear God say, I'm going to bring this plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Whether or not you obeyed, I don't want to deal with that question right now. I want to ask, whether or not you obeyed, what are you experiencing on this night? Like, as you... I mean, there are some who are preparing to leave and all of that, but, but as you, like, maybe start to go to bed, start to wonder what could happen, what do, you, do you have, like, anxiety in you? Even if you obey, 
Even if you obeyed and you know God said this, you're going to wonder, right? You're going to have something inside of you. There's going to be some sleeplessness, perhaps. That's kind of what we see in the passage take place. There's going to be this weight upon you. Even whether you obey or you don't obey, there's going to be something that you're feeling. You're going to be wondering whether or not your kids are going to be okay. And why is this? Well, this, uh, this feeling. In the middle of this feeling is where we pick up on our story. So Exodus twelve twenty nine at midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And then verse 30, And Pharaoh, he rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. What we actually see here is, is at this moment, there's like this tension in Egypt. We actually, we kind of get the idea that they are, they're waking up every moment to check on their kids, to make sure that their kids are, are okay. And, and so, so imagine if you're one of the parents now who has applied the blood of the lamb to your doorposts, and you still have this weight of wondering whether or not you're going to be okay. And then, the end of verse 30, this is what it says. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. So, um, you've applied the blood to your doorposts. You're waking up every half hour to check on your kids. And the moment that cry comes, you hear the sorrow of the people in Egypt you look, and your child is still alive. You look, and your child is still alive. What do you experience in that moment? You know what? I've not been, I've not been a parent for a long time, but I can tell you this plague takes on a whole new meaning now that I have a child. It takes on a whole new meaning to imagine what parents would have been experiencing in that moment. Relief. Wonder, thankfulness at who God is. Why? Why do you experience those things? This would have been a life-altering moment because everybody was the empty cup. Every single person was facing God's judgment against sin, and the only way that you could be saved was if you applied the blood of the Lamb to your doorpost. This would have been a life-altering moment. From this moment, you go from being a slave in Egypt, from being a person who has been oppressed, being a person who has been put down your entire life, and now being a person who was under threat of judgment against sin. And you go to recognizing that God has made a way out for all of us. God has made a way out for every single piece. And so my question, like imagine what the Israelites would have been imagining themselves, like thinking of themselves, seeing themselves. What is their self-perception at this moment? It's this extreme sense of thankfulness for what God has done because they were the empty glass, but now God has rescued them. So my question is, how often do we fail to see ourselves like Israel in this moment? Because we were the empty cups. We were the cups who had nothing. Another way you could say it is like this. Sin 
enslaved you. Sin enslaved you. So you know what? Uh, so, so what do we need from God? You know, we see that like sin leads to judgment, sure. Like, but in what ways does sin actually enslave us? Like the, the biggest way that we think of is like, oh, like God doesn't like sin, and so I should probably be careful not to do it because I, I don't want to make God mad, and I want to make sure like I get pushed over the line at the end, and so I want to like I, I just want to avoid sin. I want to keep it out here because I know that God doesn't like it, and that's kind of how we think about sin. Like God judges sin, and that's we we understand that, sure, but we don't. I think we don't often see far beyond God's judgment when we think of sin. We just think that God doesn't like it. But, but here's the reality. We're, we're satisfied. Like this is what sin does with us. Sin keeps us satisfied and full with the parts of our lives that we keep separated from God. Like there, there are parts of our lives we say, okay, God, I don't want you to touch that. Uh, so I just need you to get me to heaven. I just need you to nudge me over the edge. I don't need you to uh, bother these other parts of our life. But here's what I want you to, to understand. God actually has a bigger purpose for human life than avoidance of sin, avoidance of things that he doesn't like. And so this, is, this life that he wants for us is way bigger than just, hey, uh, live how you want and get a nudge from God at the end. We were built for so much more than this. A life that is truly and lovingly connected to our Creator. Seeing, seeing our world through His eyes. Carrying life and peace and goodness into our spheres of influence. Representing Him and actually kind of like bringing some sort of renovation to our spheres of influence. We actually like, we are built to work together with our creator to kind of bring his presence into our world. This is what we were made for. And instead, we kind of believe sin's lie that it's better for us to live for ourselves. And this is how sin enslaves us. Because what it does is it takes everything I have and it makes it about me. Makes it about the family that I can build the career path that I can follow, the social media following that I can get, the relationships that I can pursue, the victories that I am able to win, the activity that I find fulfilling, the passions that I feel I need to satisfy, the people that I need to impress. This is what sin does to us. It takes everything and it says, I'm going to make it about me and I'm going to find my worth in those things. I'm going to make those things prove me and I'm going to make those things satisfy me. And the trap becomes everything that you think proves and satisfies you actually in the end ends up becoming a slave master for you. You end up serving that thing. It binds you to this false God. It it lies to you. It makes you believe that you get some benefit from serving that thing and it leads you into a life of slavery. And this is what it ultimately does. It, It destroys the person that God made you to be and the purpose that he created you for. This is how sin's slavery works. So family, that is the slavery that we joyfully celebrate that Jesus has rescued us from. We joyfully celebrate that the blood of the lamb has rescued us from this slavery. And so, Church, we need to be really careful not to miss the extent 
of the slavery that we were under. Sin enslaved us. And so, so why do I spend all this time? Well, Israel, they actually have this realization where they recognize their emptiness. They recognize how enslaved they were. They recognize that they were equally standing in judgment before God, but then God saved them from this emptiness. And, and it actually, what it does is it causes them to make a massive pivot. Like in a moment, things start changing rapidly for Israel. And that's because that's what God saved them from. So we talked about what God saved them from, what God saved us from, but what did he save them to? And so then we move into the second stage. The second stage is this. You have a living hope. So suddenly, now there are a whole lot of things about Israel that were not true before, but now they are true. Like everything about them changes in an instant. So we're actually going to see four hopeful changes that take place for Israel. So Exodus 12, 31 and 32 says this. Pharaoh actually changes his perspective of their identity. This is what it says, 31 and 32. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So Pharaoh, he changes. He changes his perspective of the Israelite people. He changes their perspective of their identity from property to people. This is the first time in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh refers to the Hebrew people as people. Never. He never uses those words to talk about the Hebrews in any other way up to this point. Up to this point, he's always been talking to Moses. He's saying, you go out from me, you. But he never says they are a people, and now he calls them a people of Israel. What does that mean? Well, what's interesting? Why is this hopeful for them? Well, before you know what they were considered, they were subhuman. They were not people. They were animals, and they were to be treated as such. So the fact that Pharaoh now is recognizing them as people, what has been happening is that Yahweh, from the very first plague, Pharaoh's been watching Yahweh fight for the value that exists in these people. He's been fighting for them and showing them how much they are worth, and so now Pharaoh finally recognizes these are not a property. They are people. So, verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, and, and, and the Lord had given the people favor and the sight of the Egyptians, and they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So, I want you to watch another change that happens. The Egyptians changed the status of the Israelites from poor to prosperous. From poor to prosperous. So why is this hopeful for them? Well, everything had been taken away from the Israelites. They were actually on track. Like before they were put into slavery, they were on track to become a very prosperous people. And even, you know what, even if they were just freed out of slavery, if they did not have wealth with them, they would not have lasted long. Like they could not have lasted long if they weren't able to take these things with them. And so... 
They have no hope without this wealth. And, and don't forget that they had a promise given to them, right? That promise was that, hey, you're going to have kids and you're going to go into a land and you're going to be a blessing in that land. You're going to do all of these things. God had promised them this and that, that wealth, that wealth that they had been given, it was evidence that God was keeping his promise. And so when they move from poor to prosperous, it shows them there in an instant that God is taking care of them. God is keeping his promise to them. So verse 37. The people of Israel, they journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. And that is about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So the 600,000, just for what it's worth, uh, they're counting men. Um, and then they put the women and children on top of that. So, so very likely we're talking about like 2.5 million people at this point. And they journeyed. They, they started uh, going a different direction. And so they, the, actually the, the next change that we see is that they recognize a change in their purpose from directionless to determined. They, they, they actually have now a purpose where before they were kind of just serving Pharaoh. They were doing what Pharaoh wanted. They, were, they had kind of no hope of being a nation. They were kind of just doing, they were building Pharaoh's kingdom. But now they're actually like, God says that they're going to be a great nation. Like God actually has a purpose that they're going to sit in the middle of other nations, that other nations are going to look in on them and understand who God is. And so God actually gives the Israelites a purpose, whereas before they were just serving this guy, Pharaoh. They're going to extend his blessing to the nations. So then uh, in verse 38, the next change we see. If a stranger shall, shall sojourn... Oh, sorry. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And then I want to go to verse 48. It says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So what's happening here? Why highlight these verses What's happening here is that, that God is actually making a massive change for them. He's changing their relationships. He changes them from a people who were unwelcomed to a people who are welcomed by him to a people who then become welcoming to other people. So, uh, so when it says a mixed multitude went out, what that means is that it was not just Israelites that left Egypt. It was other people along with the Israelites. People who actually obeyed the call of Yahweh, who put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And, and now we, we see that on top of that, sojourners that they come across, people traveling in the land can actually become a part of the nation as well. Like you don't have to be a blood Israelite to become an Israelite. You can actually become a part of God's people if you obey God's commands. That's like what it is saying right there, which means that this people has gone from being unwelcomed in Egypt and then through through all of the plagues, God shows them that he is welcoming them. And then that causes them to change. Their identity now changes from being an unwelcomed people to a people who are welcoming all sorts of people in with them. So, uh, so you know what? There, uh, a good illustration of this is you have those negative experiences, negative things that you go through. Um, things that, that happen to you that are so powerful 
that it actually causes you to do everything you can to oppose it. So uh, since we're talking about parenting a lot today, like some people talk about like, uh, you know, if you had a, a bad experience with something that your dad did, you say, I'm, I'm going to work to completely oppose that thing that my dad did. I'm not going to be like that. And that's a very similar thing to what's happening with Israel here. They, they were an unwelcomed, oppressed people. And so now the Lord is taking them and changing them to a people who welcome. So Leviticus 19.34 points to this even more. It says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he draws on their experience in Egypt, and he says, don't do that. Like, let that change you into a person who does the opposite. You're to actually welcome in the stranger. So that's where the, the hope keeps getting restored with each of these processes. So then... Uh, Exodus twelve fifty one. This is what it says here at the end of chapter twelve. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So, so from their moment of rescue at Passover, they changed from a people who did not have hope to people who have a living hope. And the same is true for us. So, so you know what? Yeah, we were enslaved to sin. But God has given us hope. So you were enslaved to sin, but God freed you. God freed you. So the moment he rescued us, he actually changed everything about us. Our identity, our status, our purpose, our relationships, he changes those things about us. So our identity, what does he change about our identity? Well, he changes us from having to prove ourselves to the world around us to actually like making Jesus the one who proves everything for us. He changes our status from, you know, maybe, maybe we don't have a lot of material wealth or maybe we actually do have a lot of material wealth. And he says, you know what? Your status is not based on anything except the king's inheritance. You know, in the book of James, it actually says, I encourage the people who are poor to think about their high position in Christ. And I encourage those who are rich to think about their low position in Christ because they have all been given the riches of the king. The riches of the king. And so we, we move from change, thinking about our spiritual in, or our material possessions to our spiritual inheritance that we've been given. He changes our status. He changes our purpose. From people who live for self-satisfaction and self-proving to a people who live for this global movement of inviting people to come to know Jesus, to come to know who God is. We are a people now who don't live for ourselves, but a people who live to show the world who God is. He changes our purpose, and finally, he changes our relationships. He changes our relationships from those who operate in realms of convenience. You know what? Like, it's really easy for people to relate to people who are like them. But when we come to church, we get to know a whole lot of people who are not naturally like us and a whole lot of people who do not relate to the same things that we relate to and a whole lot of people who don't think the same way that we think. And God says, love each other. He changes our relationships and he says, figure out how to build across these lines that the rest of the world does not naturally build across. So this hope, this is a hope. Like we, he changes the kind of people that we are and he gives us hope and it's so vastly different from the hopelessness that was our slavery. 
And so Israel, they recognize this. They recognize that they were hopeless, but now they've been given this hope. And so now that they've been given this hope, the Lord actually calls them to something. And we see that at the beginning of chapter 13. So Exodus uh, 13, 1 and 2, this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, after the firstborn of Egypt were killed, the Lord said to Moses this, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So, so when he says consecrate, that word, it's a, he's literally saying make it holy. Set it apart. Give it to me. This is the same word for holiness. He's saying this is the Lord. So, so, so you know what? The firstborn. Why does he ask for the firstborn? Why, what is the significance of this? Well, well the firstborn... Um, the firstborn, it was the best that the, the people had. The firstborn, in ancient Near Eastern culture, actually, the firstborn existed for you. Like your firstborn, if you are a father and you had a firstborn, your firstborn existed for you. They existed to manage your estate after you passed. They existed to build your lineage. They existed to care for you when you got older. The firstborn was entirely for you. And your hope for everything that you might become, your legacy, what your future would look like, the impact that you had in the world, it was all tied up in your firstborn. Who can I become? It's based on the kind of firstborn that you bring up. And Yahweh says to those he saved, you're my people. And you know what? Your first and your best, they don't belong to you. They belong to me. Your legacies belong to me. The kind of people that you will become belong to me. The kind of impact that you will make belongs to me. And in a way, he's symbolically saying to Israel, hey, come on, agree with me on this. Everything you are or will become, everything you are or will become belongs to me. So church, we can say it like this. Sin enslaved you. God freed you. Go all in. Everything. So, so, so every call, every call to holiness is based on on this idea that you are set apart because God has saved you. You are set apart because God has saved you. Everything now belongs to him because God has saved you. And so what you, like, how does this work? Well, your bodies, they don't exist for your personal satisfaction. They exist for God's glory. Your income is not about asking the question, how much do I need to be happy? But what will I set aside to God first? The questions that you ask about family, it's not about asking, hey, how will my family make my name great? How will I live vicariously through my kids? But it's about actually, like, how will my family make God's name great? The question that you ask about your vocation is not kind of what gets me furthest in my vocation, but what gets God furthest with the gifts and talents that he has given me. My time is not like, not, not how can I like give the, the extra time that I have left over, but, but how can I give God and others my best time? My relationships, it's not about making my relationships about what fulfills me, but about what most pleases God in my relationships. Everything. God has saved you, and so now every single piece belongs to him. So God's rescue of us is so amazing, and it provides us such hope, a hope that we could not otherwise have in our only right response is to commit 
every piece of our first and our best to him. Just like he called the Israelites to consecrate their firstborn. He says, every piece of your first and your best belongs to me. So you know what, ABC? Sin enslaved you. God freed you. Go all in. So what? So what? Uh, I just have two, and they're about things that, that freed people understand, things that, that freed people realize. So the first one is this. Free people, they understand the urgency of their situation. So, so you know what? Our rescue, if we actually see ourselves as the empty cup, our rescue should produce in us a sense of urgency. So the question that we're answering is, how meaningful is that rescue to us? Like, what was our self-perception? Did we see ourselves as the person who was kind of full and only needed a little bit? Or do we actually see ourselves as the person who was empty and needed everything from Jesus? You know what? Because if we recognize how hopeless we were, it will create a sense of urgency in us because we recognize that all you can do is turn towards hope. So it's what the Israelites did. And, and, and you know what? I would wager that when we lack an urgent pursuit of the Lord in holiness, it's because we don't really believe that we were all that hopeless. We kind of see ourselves like, like the glass that was mostly full. We kind of think, you know what? In the pursuits that I had, in, in the dreams that I had, I was kind of taken care of. I just needed God to get me over the edge a little bit. But when we think that that little uh, nudge is the only thing that we need, it, it leads us to kind of this misguided place. It leads us to this place of thinking like, you know what, sin and living for ourselves, it's not all that bad for us. And God's like, you know, God's kind of misguided in his call to, to call us away from that. So, so if we see that what it is that we've been freed from, like the hopelessness that we've been freed from, the enslavement that we've been freed from, if we actually see how empty we were, then it will produce, when God comes and gives us hope, and God actually like saves us from this hopelessness, it, it actually like produces in us this sense of urgency where we can't help but pursue the Lord in everything. So if you lack urgency, I'd encourage you to remember the hopelessness of slavery and celebrate the hope of freedom. Like if you're at lacking urgency in your pursuit of the Lord, then, then I need you to do these two things and really like try, like reflect this week on just, and, and, and in the weeks and in the months and the years to come, remember how hopeless you were. Like really grasp it, understand it, and then celebrate how great God's hope is. Number two, freed people realize that they owe their rescuer everything. You know what? They are thankful. Free people are thankful for what they have received through the actions of someone else. And you know what? They don't even, they don't even necessarily view it as a debt, but they see it as a life to live in gratitude. So Romans 6, 20 through 23 says it like this. It says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed from the end? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have been, become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you know what? Just like, just like the Israelites, they were rescued with the blood of a lamb. Jesus rescued us from slavery with his blood. He is the pathway out of slavery for us, and he is the way to lasting life and hope. And you know what? This truth, this truth should lead us to go all in and to give everything to him. So you know what? Alliance Bible Church, sin enslaved you. God freed you. So go all in. Would you pray with me, please? So this morning, as we just reflect on these realities, I ask that you would draw our attention to hope. Lord, hope is so significant to us because we were so utterly hopeless until you showed up. We, 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 we couldn't even figure things out for ourselves. We were just stuck in living for ourselves and serving those slave masters who kept using us for their own purposes. All the while thinking it was doing something for us. And God, how mistaken we were. And so, Lord, as we consider these things, as we think about what it is that you have actually done for us, Lord, help us to remember our hopelessness. But then, as we Look to you. Help us to celebrate the amazing hope that you give us. Help us to celebrate the fact that we have a living hope. We have been born again by the blood of Jesus. Our sin has been covered and paid for. The dark Forces the enemy of our souls has been defeated at the cross of Jesus. Lord, let all of these things give us hope and move us to giving everything to you. So, Lord, as we think about these things, as we ponder them, and Lord, as your Holy Spirit directs our minds and our hearts toward them, May you make us into the people you desire us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.